Welcome to the Jungian Anthology Podcast, Analytical Psychology Seminars from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Episode 4, Mother Earth Body Self, Therapeutic Process as Return and Re-Emergence with Sylvia Brinton Pereira, M.A. Jungian Analyst. Just as Earth is source, support, and home to humankind, so the mother's body is source, support, and home of each infant. When the individual's primal bond is scarred by basic faults, therapy often involves the female analysands falling through the painful wounds of the personal mother complex to meet the archetypal energies and images in deep therapeutic regression. This manifests initially through psychoidal phenomena intense emotions, and the transferential dynamics of the therapeutic field, sometimes expressed as shape-shifting images of the body self, which are similar to images of the goddess of nature revered since Neolithic times, the regression can enable reconnection to the healing feminine depths and the emergence of a more secure and authentic ego. Sylvia Brinton Pereira, M.A., is a Jungian analyst who lives, practices, writes, and teaches in New York and Vermont. On the faculty and board of the Jung Institute of New York, she lectures and leads workshops internationally. Her publications include Descent to the Goddess, A Way of Initiation for Women, The Scapegoat Complex, Toward a Mythology of Shadow and Guilt, Dreams, A Portal to the Source, Celtic Queen Maeve and Addiction, An Archetypal Perspective, and The Irish Bull God, image of multiform and integral masculinity. Now, before we get to the lecture, there is one thing I want to mention. Um, I've created a forum attached to the Young Institute website, and there will be a link in the show notes. And we're trying it out to see if anyone is interested in discussing the episode. That's a place where you can do it rather than using the comments on the, the podcast page itself. There's a little more back and forth. Uh, there are options to p do private messaging and things like that. Um, so check it out if you're interested. Uh, so far, of course, we just started it, so there isn't anyone on there. But if you're interested in writing anything about your, you know, your personal response to the podcast episode, you can also go back and comment on the previous ones. I've added topics for those too. So check it out. And if you have any feedback about that, you can send it to me at young at youngchicago.org. I also want to mention two upcoming seminars in case you're interested in uh, coming to live classes rather than just listening to the podcast. Uh, the first is Nature and Human Nature, an encounter with Rinda West, PhD. It's on Friday, December 5th, 2014 from 2 to 5 p.m. Uh, and it'll be at the Institute. Our address is 53 West Jackson Boulevard, Suite 438, Chicago, Illinois. Uh, and then the second one is... A week after that, it's Passion, Obsession, and Depression, Exploring Dynamic Images of the Dark Mother with Patricia Vesey McGrew, M-A-N-C-S-I-A. It's Friday, December 12th, 2 to 5 p.m., and this one is at Loyola University Chicago Water Tower Campus, the Corboy Law Center, which is uh, at 20, uh, 25 East Pearson, room 211. So without further ado, here's the lecture. Uh, introducing Sylvia Pereira, whom of course needs little or no introduction to very many of us. 
Nevertheless, I take this opportunity to express my great joy that we finally managed to get her here and um, to say some of what I feel about her. I heard somebody yesterday um, call her a luminary, and I told her that this morning. She went, ooh. <laughs> but her light is one that shines almost in spite of herself. And we're very fortunate that it does. Um, it's her, in the integrity and uh, focus of her own journey, her own explorations that give such value to her work um, and, of course, the talent that she brings to the creation of her books and her speech as well. Without further ado, Sylvia Pereira. Oh, you can't, you can't hear. Okay. Can you hear now? Good. Okay. Thanks, Caroline. For many analyzons of all ages, the feminine aspects of the self first appear in therapy as energies and images of the matrix, earth, mother, and body. These structure the transference and countertransference field just as they manifest in dreams and active imaginations to guide the therapeutic process. I want to bring you some of this material as it has appeared in the drawings and dreams of several clients, so cut off from the matrix that they couldn't even feel its loss. Yet their therapeutic work compelled their return from their false self, persona identities into the maternal archetype in order to repair the basic faults they had been trapped in and struggled to control and cover. Since the images marking their analytic journeys are sometimes strikingly similar to those of the Celtic earth goddesses, as well as to the works of some modern artists who are expressing the return of the goddess in contemporary culture, I'll also get a chance to bring you a few wonderful amplifications. That's my first primary task. Secondly, I want to show you a few examples of the bizarre images of the matrix that we often get in dreams and artistic products as we enter the processes of this primordial level. While they can occur at any stage of analysis, I've come to recognize them as harbingers or manifestations of the need for resubmersion in the unconscious that precedes re-emergence and potential renewal. There are bizarre images with a purpose. And thirdly, I want to show you a series of paintings made by a woman client to suggest some of the phases of transformation that occurred in her analysis. I've seen a similar pattern in the work of other successfully coping heroic daughters of the patriarchy who grew up in families where there was a strong negation of the feminine spirit. It's important to realize that the rhythms of continual return and reemergence, moving from chaos to order and back to chaos, are necessary to, to begin to heal the female ego in its primal relations to Mother Earth, body and self, and to make that ego into a flexible, resilient, and spacious core of identity that can relate to all the parts and capacities a woman is. Now, like a traveler in the landscape, I'll describe the surroundings in their in intimate immediacy to try to evoke in you my experiences of the journey shared with clients. That way lies close to the fluid relational modalities of matrix processes. From time to time, though, for a longer view, I'll shift to a more abstract language and perspective to contemplate the larger meanings of the terrain. We all know that the first horizon the infant sees is the body of its mother. Joyce McDougall writes, 
To the infant, its mother, is something much vaster than simply another human being. She is a total environment, a mother universe, and the infant is but a small part of this immense and exciting unit. We know that when that large, larger, embracing body is empathically attuned to our needs, we can learn trustingly to receive and actively to seek satisfaction. We experience ourselves embedded in a relatively constant continuum and blessed to abide, even to thrive, through all kinds of intoxicating passions and dismembering pain. When that matrix is not adequately enough attuned, we feel abandoned and alienated, alienated from life, angry, envious, and or inferior, as if our loss is our own fault. Now, just as the mother is the holding and transforming environment of her, of her nursling, so the earth goddess, what Henry James has called the great, merciless, but still most enfolding and never disowning mighty mother, that great goddess is the encompassing and sustaining landscape of her tribe's people, the mother universe supporting each member's participation in their collective identity. This primary Celtic, pre-Celtic deity was nature itself. By the extension common to magic level consciousness, she was earth and also the heavens above and waters nearby. She was the powerful forces in earth's clefts, hills, flowing waters, and ley lines. She was also the animal, vegetal, and mineral life that grew in the land. She was time itself as the seasons of the agricultural year. In many myths of the cosmic source of life and death, she was the mother of all the gods and the creatrix of landscape features, animals, and human beings. One example, the great nature goddess of Barry in South Ireland was said to have dropped cairns out of her apron onto the hills of Knee, to have moved islands in West Kerry, built mountains from rocks carried in her fish basket. She was called divine ancestress and grew old with seven royal husbands and was, the ever renewed, and was ever renewed, so her children and grandchildren became whole clans. Known in Celtic lands by many local names translated roughly as Great High Queen or Shining Exalted One, Silver Wheel or Ancient Woman, this nature goddess was acknowledged as the matrix of all life. Her body as earth appeared to human view when the ca caverns and in the caverns and water sources and hilltops at which she has been worshipped from times immemorial until today. And her majestic curving forms became even clearer to consciousness when the forests of Europe were cleared for the ox-drawn plow in the 5th millennium BC. This fertile earth goddess, the great pan-European Anu, is the precursor of Saint Anne, who in Christianity holds the mother on whom the self-child sits. She is the archetype behind the personal incarnations and misincarnations of Mami. Oh, thank you. The holding background object, giving birth to and supporting the emergent ego. Henry James, again, who has such a gift with words, celebrates the interrelationship beautifully in the great good place where two men talk of being babes at the breast of some great mild invisible mother who stretches away into space and whose laps the whole valley and her bosom the noble eminence of our hill. Today, with our contemporary, more individualized and internalized life, we also need to know her in the many shapes that comprise the landscapes of our inner geography as well. The very language of psychoanalysis refocuses us on the realm of body and matter and relational processes that was developed, devalued so long in the culture that separated from feminine spirituality. Mouths and bellies, good and bad breasts, genitalia, and all their functions are part of the realm of therapeutic discourse.
In the landscape of Ireland, although this happens to be England, the fertile mountains are seen as breasts and bellies, knees and hips, because their shapes are similar. We know from modern studies of infant perception and gestalt psychology that body parts can convey a sense of the whole. This research corroborates an operative connection in magic level consciousness in us all. A part can stand for the whole. Thus the Celts saw parts of the landscape as representations of the goddess. By similarity and pars pro toto, the earth was body and the earth body was the divine maternal life giver and container. The land looked like mother, mirroring the mounds and clefts and fluid, fluids of the human body. It also functioned transformatively like mother. It produced food and waters and living creatures. It is out of these sensuous similarities between earth and mother and female body that raw existence is blessed to survive and even heal through union and at one moment. It is out of differences and distinctions that separation and individuality emerge. When we focus on similarities, we move away from our dominant culture's masculine values, which enthrone distance and objective vision, abstractions, domination, and competitive uniqueness. We move into a realm where process, receptive mutuality and empathy, relational closeness, attunement, and even fluid boundaries are treasured. In our age, both perspectives are necessary, and we're learning to honor both to experience the whole field. Because there is a profound archetypal resonance and isomorphism between mother and earth, earth and body, an individual may still find containment in the landscape of nature after leaving the intrauterine state and the mother of infancy. Thus, through experiences of the maternal archetype in the landscape, or the landscape of a lover's body, or in the holding environments of all kinds of relationships, including therapy, the wandering and lost child adult can sustain or even rediscover aboriginal security. Indeed, often we turn to nature as mother when we are under stress and need maternal containment and nourishment to shore up our vulnerabilities. Many analyzans who have suffered severe parental abuse or neglect confess their profound sense of at-homeness in nature. They confess secret, sometimes fantasy bonds with specific places or animals that have sustained them. As one client said, in nature, the rocks and trees won't spy on you or slap. Often images of the archetypal earth woman appear in therapy to help restore a damaged or perverted sense of the feminine. Usually we come to know this encompassing matrix after we have peeled away our defenses enough to see the truth about our loyalty to our personal mother complex. And then we may begin to trust a transformative process much larger than our personal experience of the feminine. Sometimes in the therapeutic process, when we, need, when we need help to resolve the archetypal transference to a woman analyst, we may also find our access to the Holy Mother in a numinous image or in nature, just as Jung's patient dreamt of him as a grain god. This modern Santre image is the first made by a 48-year-old woman, an obsessive workaholic executive with colitis and a ravaging mother complex which had destroyed much of her creative life. I want to tell you the story of its creation. I first offered her the Santre toward the end of, of her second year of twice-weekly analysis, after she asked if there was some other way than with words to work. She approached the shelves full of many figures and forms, made a gesture of revulsion, and turned away. No, I don't want objects. They're too sharp, meaning too, too definite and differentiated, too clearly conceptual markers of the world she knew she needed to let go. Instead, her hands hovered over the tray. Slowly and silently, she sat down and burrowed them under the sand. Her extroverted, effective, cheery persona identity immediately quieted. She moved her fingers, watching the ripples they made. And then taking out her left hand, she began to raise a mound over the right. 
Engrossed in moving and smoothing, she pulled out her hand and worked with both, enjoying the heaping and sliding movements of the sand. After the mound was high, she ran her hands over the form caressingly. She was silent. I thought of a nursing infant touching the mother's breasts. I thought of the paps of Anu, hills in County Kerry that are identified with the breasts of the goddess, whose body stretches across tribal lands. Since the Earth's, Earth's force was felt there, stone cairns were piled as shrines to mark the nipples as centers of power. And into the 1930s, young women who were about to marry or who suffered infertility made their pilgrimage to these peaks on May 1st to receive the goddess's blessing at the ritual beginning of her fertile summer year. By reverent contact with the transpersonal source at its most potent imaginal and material local points, these women could magically, religiously, and concretely embed their particular need or incapacity within the whole archetypal system. Thus, impeded functioning could be realigned to flow again in a unified matter-spirit-body-cell field that Jung called psychoidal. This model of holistic healing is basic to our work. It underlies the client-centric process. Whoops, wrong direction. Nope. This machine does not like to go back. Oh, yes, we did. Okay. My analyzon made a small protrusion in the top of the mound and sat back. I broke the long silence to muse. Like a full breast? She immediately punched her fist into the top and began to talk about a volcano she had visited in Hawaii. I understood too late that I'd been induced to speak from the eruptive mother complex she was seeking to burrow under. Her own volcanic rage now stood menacingly in the image. I acknowledged her anger and my mistake, and she began talking anxiously about various trips she had made as if to show her proficiency and her outer seeking, her words choppy and disconnected from the rhythm that had been in her hands, her words like part of the defensive world her hands had been resurrected to ignore. Eventually, pacifying herself, she re-smoothed the mound and let her fingers spiral up and around it over and over. And now I was reminded of the mazes of Layard's Malakula volcano goddess and the labyrinthine path around ancient Glastonbury Tor. But I remained silent. Sometimes when her hand reached the summit, she now marked the top with a dot. Again and again she created and smoothed the way, now circling the site clockwise, as if her body knew the ancient ways. She took water to make the form hold together better and remarked on the smell of wet sand, implying to me that the first chakra, Muladhara level, was constellated here, the level of basic survival. Finally, relaxing and touching her own belly with her left hand, and thus inadvertently identifying her diseased abdomen with the archetypal earth form, as Donald Sandner has taught us is the healing ritual purpose of Navajo sand paintings, and as the women of Ireland did at the paps of the earth goddess, she made a small depression at the top, saying slowly with deep emotion, this is a belly, and that's the navel. It's the center. The sand is the body of a woman, a goddess. Oh, I need to touch to be in touch. I need the concrete embodiment to hold the image so it can touch me, so I can touch. Having reached toward the felt center of her complex, she was symbolically and actually reattuning her body psyche with the maternal earth archetype in the sand tray. She was enacting a ceremonial healing with the earliest environment mother, the matrix of life before she becomes an object mother with specific parts, and experiencing the process of emergence into being within a body that is one with the great mother goddess. In this simple therapeutic process, the analyzon was also enacting a Paleolithic healing ritual that we can still see marked out in ancient pathways around sacred sites. 
It is one which the Irish still honor in their annual pilgrimages, remembering in action customs they no longer fully comprehend when they follow the path of their ancestors up the mountains of the white goddess, just as this Anna Lazan's fingers traced her own climb. Modern pilgrims visit the shrines on the feast day of the local saints, who have replaced the older gods and taught new mythologies. Circling the sacred natural object clockwise is a very ancient ceremony. People danced around a tree, a bonfire, standing stone, holy well, hilltop, or maypole, which stands at the circle's center as the object of veneration and attunement. Such dancing is a mode of honoring and becoming attuned with the source. It is one way humans have lent their energy to regenerate the earth powers. Today, the ancient ritual of circling a sacred natural place sunwise has been renamed Clipping the Church. It's enacted only by children on Shrove Tuesday. But the ritual also exists, exists in children's games and we find it in our work. When we circle the image, dream, or complex to approach its archetypal core, we perform the same ritual dance symbolically to become attuned with the archetypal source of our individual body and consciousness. And of course, there are also Celtic amplifications of the mound itself. In Neolithic times, the landscape of Ireland and Albangal was sometimes sculpted to represent the powers of the maternal deity. This vast mound called Silvery Hill was created to suggest the pregnant belly of the goddess. It's the largest prehistoric structure in the world. Similar, those smaller hills were often raised over central chambers like this. Originally, the table form we now see was covered, but here the earth raised by human hands to make the ancient mound has worn away to reveal an interior dolmen core, like the original hand passage made by the Annalizand in her sand tray. One such dolmen in Pembrokeshire is still called the womb of the goddess. In it, would-be sages probably meditated and incubated in order to receive their enlightenment. That was called sleeping with the mother. Sleeping with the mother also meant dying. In such barrows, both womb and tomb, the initiate identified with the rotting seed that waits for a new gestation in the belly of the earth just as the hands of the Annalizand waited under the sand for the moment of activity and creation. As we have seen in this one example, which is one of several mounds I've witnessed being created in the sand tray or with paints, the image of the earth womb is still potent today and occurs when there is a call to the incubation and rebirth in the regress transference. As Jung says, Therapy must support the regression and continue to do so until the prenatal stage is reached, since regression, if left undisturbed, does not stop at the personal mother, but goes back beyond her to the prenatal realm of the eternal feminine, to the immemorial world of archetypal possibilities, where thronged round with images of all creation slumbers the divine child in a world of wholeness, patiently awaiting conscious realization. We know that by falling through the hole in the personal constellation of the mother, we make contact with the transpersonal patterns governing matter and spirit that await activation and which are the true source of the corrective or healing emotional experiences. I want to give you an example of the same motif from a man, since the process occurs in both genders. This particular man of 42 was beginning to realize that his erotic transference was mixed with a heroic defensive power play. The heroics allowed him to feel in control of the therapy and to hide from his own envy of the therapist's empathy, as well as what he called unattainable easy spontaneity. His repeated attempts at sexual seduction of the therapist and secret acting out with prostitutes covered deeper cravings for the mother and for a safe regression to open towards human relationship 
his lonely autistic pocket and the eruptive energies he had anesthetized with drugs and sex. After much work with the polymorphous erotic energies and the phallicism through which they are often focused to deny primary dependency needs, he was one day able to acknowledge that he didn't really want sex. He felt very young and ashamed and full of longing to crawl into you and curl up and lie there. He defended against this level of experiencing his need by forgetting the next appointment and returning with rather heady material about his frustrations with several women. As we worked, he began to acknowledge his anxiety about the need for re return and re-emergence, which can only be humiliating for a macho hero. When he began to localize his fear and frustration in his abdomen and to feel into it by allowing his breathing to go deeper into his body, he became anxious. Leaving the session, he dismissed his experience with a snort at this simple-minded play. And then, as if the self was intent on guiding him from his consuming, personally possessive, dominative transference toward the more dependent one, he had a dream. I have to put R, a helplessly raging and needy woman, into an incubator. It's an earth mound with a tunnel like a big belly. There's white paint around the mound to contain the energy so the woman can stay and change in there. The dream shows him the archetypal power of the great yin body vessel. Associating the raging and needy women, woman to his own cravings, he found the earth womb, like his meditative abdominal breathing, could be an incubating and embodied attitude with which he needed to experience and reflect on his outbursts and compulsions, to stay with and allow them to change, and to begin to find creative and related means of expressing the energy. The white circle in the dream marks the sacred temenos and points to the attitude of reflective containment he was learning in the therapy. His process here, I think, also illustrates what Jung called the psychization of libido, that transformation of energy from an acted-out compulsion through its containment in the therapeutic process and the felt experience in his body to finally a relationship to the symbolic image. When I thought of his dream, I thought of Newgrange, which not surprisingly also amplifies the Santre work. Newgrange is part of a Neolithic temple complex of sacred mounds and standing stones raised in the Boyne River Valley in Eastern Ireland. Here the inner womb chamber of the Great Mother is penetrated every year by the winter solstice sunrise to begin the unchanging yet ever new cycle. And there's a nearby temple that, that uh, the, the, uh, uh, the tunnel opens to the equinox sunrise. The placement of the architectural elements which marks the landscape to create earthly forms that are in resonance with celestial rhythms and events. Through knowledge of the stars and seasoned, thus gained in the vast observatory, the people could maintain their rituals in harmony with their cosmic context. As above, so below was incarnated into this earliest architecture. And the goddess of the wheel of heaven was one with the goddess of earth before upper and lower were split apart. This enormous temple, which is restored, as you can see, was considered the home or temple of the white cow and river goddess of the eastern region, Boan. The white cow is associated with the heaven's river, the Milky Way, and so are the white quartz stones from distant hills that are now, now have been replaced. They shine with reflected celestial light on, on earth. The very roundness of the temple form expresses the inclusivity of spirit as the builders felt it. Everything in heaven or earth was sacred in this worldview. Every seemingly separate thing was linked by its interdependence within a field of subtly perceived energies. Every apparently separate element was also linked imaginally by chains of analogy, contiguity, isomorphism, 
and by synchronicity and word magic, the connections we associate clinically to magic level consciousness. Such an inclusive view of the great round provides an extraordinary sense of ecstatically, intuitively, and sensately perceived cosmic holism that we are slowly rediscovering through modern scientific intuitions, as well as in the experiences of analyzans during the radically deep and turbulent stages of their psychic journey. Now I want to say something about uh, the polymorphous forms in general. Because like the mound that is a volcano mountain, a belly, breast, womb, and incubator temple and tomb, when they manifest in image form, such curiously, disturbingly preconceptual and fluctuating images defy neat categorization. Emerging as unstable, polymorphous shapes that offer multiple possibilities, they portray the very process of transformation, the action of sea change into something rich and strange. We may be tempted to call these images psychotic and bizarre, but because they are held within the larger context of the therapeutic field that includes other capacities for relationship and consciousness, they are likely to be part of the meaningful process of repair occurring deep in the psyche. We asso associate these shape-shifting images to the protean deities that represent the forces of nature, primal drive energies, and archetypal emotional states. As Jungians, we call this the level of the prima materia, or from a more cognitive perspective, the massa confusa. When we get such pre-differentiated polymorphous images in therapy, we can assume that the analyzon's consciousness has returned to a state of merger in the self-matrix. While some such returns reveal disintegration towards actual death or malignant psychic states, others are stages in a purposive process. Their purpose is the relativizing and transformation of habitual defenses and complexes as these encounter energies pouring like molten magma from the archetypal source ground to reshape the structures of the psychic landscape. Thus often, the images express a kind of simultaneous multiplicity, a mix of complex personal images and pre-personal archetypal elements deintegrating into new forms. When we receive such forms in therapy, we can also assume that the client's psyche is so open to the larger field that there is no coalesced center of consciousness in relation to the emerging material, to which she can connect to reach specifics and particularity. These images are like forerunners of thoughts without a thinker, Nobian's phrase. Awareness of inside and outside, of body and drives, is fluid, still emerging and receding within the primal matrix environment of ego self. Thus the client needs a well enough attuned relation to another person that is similar to the relation of mother and infant to help hold and sort out the polymorphous energies and images. At this stage of radical dependency, the mother analyst, could be a father analyst too, needs to be experienced as having interests identical with those of the child analyzant, even though there's a clear sense of separateness. In the mutually constellated field, the therapist needs to allow parts of herself to be used to mirror empathically the emergent parts of the analyzant psyche and to buffer and metabolize disruptions. Even cognitive interpretations can be felt as terribly disruptive. Since this level is relatively unspeakable, we monitor it in our own resonating images and at the affect end of the archetypal spectrum in the deeply embodied emotions of the transference and countertransference field and through the inductions or projective identifications that flow back and forth between analyzant and analyst. When we are fortunate, we are also shown the shape-shifting images through which it rises into the client's awareness. 
shapeshifts can be as simple as a dream image that wolves are turning into collies. Or there is a dark-robed woman who is also an oven, and she tells me to bake bread between her legs. Here it's relatively easy to see that the issue of the wolves associated wild, viciously defended territoriality is being shifted for consciousness into humanly related herding and guarding, guardianship. Or to see the transformative potential in serving this uncanny self-figure. The oven woman emerged in the Amelizan's painting of the dream figure as a kind of cosmic goddess like a mountain or standing stone with spiral eyes and a long face shape-shifting into a vulva with a candle flowing fire or water over an altar pillar oven. Both of these dreams, images, express turning points in which the analyzons could finally trust themselves to be held by the therapy as they experience the transformative self. By contrast, a client who dreamt of a ghoul-like woman turning into a mountain drew the figure atop a hill of bones and distanced herself from the spoiling corpse robber with a lifetime capacity for mountainous stability and medicated self-control. She drew the form separately rather than turning from one to the other. Um, to hold her own wreckages of pain and rage with conceptually clear differentiations and she also maintained her habit of negativity and doomsaying enthroned in the psyche. This more disturbing image of body parts from below with a face of breast eyes and vaginal mouth foretold the beginnings of a new identity emerging through dismemberment of the client's dancer's persona ego. All of these polymorphous pictures have a kind of surrealistic imagery but are very different from the artifices of surrealism. They come directly raw from the unconscious to express the polymorphous archetypal matrix without defensive or manipulative interference and control from consciousness. And not knowing or even aiming for symbols, which we get in a lot of Jungian painting when you're painting the symbols of your dreams. Here, uh, the sense is you stay so open that you're still creating as you go. Oops. Now I want to give you a longer view of the process of another analysand which has made me start thinking about uh, thinking towards a kind of paradigm of female ego developing in, in therapy. This series of paintings was done over a four-year period by a woman entering therapy almost wordless in her despair. She was nearly aphasic, driven out of the capacities that had won her college honors and graduation from medical school. Three years married to a puer, whom I later learned was a rage-filled manic depressive, she discovered that the honeymoon period of illusions that she could make it all right for him had worn out. She felt trapped and blamed herself, plummeting into an abyss of self-loathing that was shattering her persona ego. After producing the bare facts of her situation in the first session, she told me she wasn't sure she really needed treatment. Perhaps she should try medication, or perhaps I would give her a referral to a male therapist in training, telling me a lot with that formulation. I later learned that she feared and devalued me as much as she hated being female, for she had experienced the feminine in a masochistic, sadistic opposition. Her mother had been what she called a squash doormat, while her father had savage anima outbursts. The first sessions were nearly wordless, but redolent with projective emotions of hopelessness and rage turned against herself. Inductions that I perceived somatically, processed through my own images and experience, and contained hoping to shift them off her overburdened psyche to within the therapeutic field. 
When I tentatively sought to express the metabolized emotions verbally, she looked panic-stricken, as if accused or about to be tricked by the projected negative animus. So I held my expression to occasional sounds and facial movements that tried to mirror her states unobtrusively. And as often helps in such dire emergencies when consciousness is identified with the destroyer, I also tried to objectify the sadistic negative superego animus that was attacking her consciousness and self-esteem, her links to the self and our bond. I helped her to begin to identify the inner voice of rejection and negative judgment as an other, a complex, bent upon maintaining its power by keeping her identified with feeling worthless. I hoped to have her gain a foothold for observing consciousness. This work reminded her of a dream she had had before she called for her first appointment. And because of its aptness, I knew that she somewhere had a capacity for symbolic processing so the treatment might be blessed. In the dream, she watched in mute terror from a tiny cave as three tornadoes gouged the landscape. She was able to sketch the pattern of deep interlacing furrows. They looked sort of like a braid. As we slowly pieced together her history over the next months, we came to see that the three tornadoes were an analogous to her experiences of the masculine whirlwind god in her savagely critical and abusive father, her manic depressive tyrannical husband, and the misogynist pundits of the surgical profession in which she was still determined to succeed. And they were also the forces of that destructive tyranny bent upon perfection or nothing in her own psyche, an interpretation which at that point I didn't make since she had so little safe psychic terrain of her own in which to integrate it. She lived with her authentic self in hiding. After the relative ease of the sketch of the tornadoes, and as we were working together on the negative animus, I wondered if she would be able to use color instead of what she called sentences that disappear to express the inchoate emotions in which she felt imprisoned. And soon she brought in a picture. Oops. There it is. It had not been intentionally representational. Nonetheless, in session, she was frightened to see a one-eyed death's head in acid purple. Can you see it okay? I saw it as a portrait of despair and of her identity with mental acuity that had no embodied support. When we turned the picture to see from a less conscious perspective, which I like to do with polymorphous material, she discovered, if you think of the right side being the bottom, she discovered what she saw to be a mare looking backwards. And she remembered that she had loved to ride in her adolescence until she met with the ferocious sort of lippins on her like riding master. I wondered to myself if the mayor suggested metaphorically a process that could not move on or a malignant regression. It had an energy that felt lively if we could find it. And I also thought of the Celtic mare goddess drawn into the landscape of her tribespeople, representing the libido that carries the life process and ensures the fertility of the land. It was in any case clear from the entanglement of images that death and life were clanging together. There was tension enough to tear her apart or to start a flow of energy if the therapy could provide a vessel for its eruption. And of course, I now see that the polymorphous quality of the images suggests that a life-changing process was already in full swing. In the next picture, she had found some of the black and red, red rage, which was enacted and expressed a lot over the course of the therapy. The mouth curls in contempt. Sharp, aggressive rays move out from the form, and the horse seems to prance tensely. Before leaving that session, she mentioned that she had always mistrusted women as weak and worthless, and she watched my face closely as she spoke. 
As if finding, for the first of many times, that some of her aggression and hate would not be destructive of the relationship in herself, she painted a jar with a flower that she said was also a dog or horse's head with two eyes, one still asleep. She was not sure which way the head was to go, or if the sharp lower triangles were teeth or legs, but the forms exist in a, a rudimentary landscape, and on such teeth she could begin to support herself and to metabolize her perceptions. I felt that the jar contained a kind of seed form, and there were frond-like vegetal shapes, and that in these she was expressing the beginnings of a therapeutic vessel, still tipped but relatively sturdy, with hints of a muddy earth green and a lot of potential within. She began to act and speak as if she sometimes felt an alliance forming with a therapist. She began to plot strategies of self-defense in her outer life but I sensed that it was partly in false compliance with what she thought I wanted for her, perhaps mixed with some positive modeling on an abiding and protective transformative feminine. And here's a painting she didn't show me at the time. She began work on it when she made the jar and continued, as she said, struggling to make coherence, find some center for myself. It stands against her compliance. Because she couldn't yet trust me in the process, she worked secretly to support her own separate, fortress-like independence. The forms feel hard and mechanical, with angry spokes protecting the center like those in the second death's head. I think it represents the survival of her old controls and hiding schizoidal defenses, though there are intimations of a safe center from which to relate in the many approaches, sort of like rivers. The next painting she showed me two months later expresses her growing security in the transference. She said, the warm yellow is inside with the little one and an egg or a ball of dung is already coming out. Maybe it's wings or a harp. Maybe it's a swan with that neck, not an ugly duckling. The shapeshifts on, on each of which we mused as if they were parts of a dream began to reveal the dual unity of mother and child, of different yet interrelated people, and an embryonic sense of her body self planted in the bond. We can see the germ of her own incarnated being basking and being brooded over by someone whom she didn't have to care about, even if she expected to have her own needs met. She was falling into archaic need in the transference, opening to what she called babbling, and that means telling everything and knowing you will listen. She stopped ringing in paintings and began to find her voice. We worked on her mistrust of the therapy and her own perceptions on her thunderously negative animus and her masochistic relation to, to her husband, on whom she projected both the fierce animus and her own dependency. She began painting a series of the animus as demon, dark bird, hungry dwarf, and finally as a pathetic, ghostly king baby praying in the wilderness. And she also did some quite abstract paintings that I felt were struggles with the archetype of order in relationship, uh, kind of spirals uh, turning into squares, very complicated intellectually, but she was struggling. In her outer life, she began to claim a position against the authorities that seemed so persecutory. And about eight months later, she brought a picture she described as a woman forming out of the mist and looking into a pool, or maybe the moon reflected in the water, maybe about to go into the pool, or sidewise, if you turn it up again with the, the right side, or perhaps in either direction, it's hard to tell. Uh, it's one woman looking into a mirror or perhaps two women looking at each other. In it, she's beginning to, to claim a fetal kind of human body and a spacious enough psychic landscape in which to incarnate. The dual unity includes, includes nature and more of a twinship. 
there's a clear reference to the empathic interrelationship she was experiencing in the therapy, a kind of mirroring that enables a sense of self-cognizance with both mutuality and harmonious independence. But she wasn't sure which side was up, suggesting that she still had no consistent conscious ground line or position in the therapeutic work, even though she was holding her own somewhat better in the outer world. And the shape-shifting forms also signaled to me another return to pre-verbal levels. I wondered where we were to go. Since the space between us was relatively clear of the persecutory animus, early memories of being, being and relating to, began to emerge into thought between us, the unthought known that Christopher Bolas has written about. And she began having faint memories of a very traumatic infancy and childhood, almost just as body sensations. And throughout the painful rememberings and much silence, she often grabbed my hand or sat on the floor near my chair. She began to talk about her bodily and social inhibitions, confessing to what she realized were undifferentiated genital sensations. As if retreating from heterosexual relating and further toward the matrix that therapy provided, she took a leave from her hospital work and allowed the regression. She felt a mixture of excitement and shame as she fell now into what I thought was an early, perhaps urethral erotic transference that mixed together the early exciting persecutory bodily abuse and her desires for experience of the unbounded, unremitting flow from the self that would carry her to healing. She felt awash with desire to be with the mother analyst and to share everything. She wanted to come to session every day and she couldn't. She telephoned the answering machine often. And then the pain of separation found assuagement and a kind of transitional holding in the many showers she began to take. She communed with the therapeutic process standing under the warm running water. In that space, she began to enjoy and explore her own nakedness, caressed by the warm streams. Far from the professional eye of the surgeon, she began to feel her body with near senses and from within. She felt she was melting. More of her defenses were. And she brought in a series of paintings of the experience of this saludio, flowing streams and her body with its shapes and fluids merged with the earth's waters. This one suggests the inter interpenetration of flowing water and watery ledges. She said it was the beginnings of a sense of herself looking down at all the intricate curves and folds below. That thing in the middle is her head. Instead of her early identity with the bony abstraction of the skull, here she's finding the landscape of her original body self in the healing, rebirthing maternal waters. And it felt like the beginnings of a natural center, not a defended fortress one. Perhaps the birth of an adult body self to consciousness. She started this painting in blues, like the formal, former ones, but it took on earthly colors that she tried to rub out. She was reluctant to allow ruddy colors and said she preferred the free water. She said she would like never to have to emerge. At home, she was masturbating with fantasies of being caressed. She was taking three and four showers a day for the pleasure of water flowing and her own autoeroticism. After working to erase some of this picture, as if trying to erase the earthiness and the more definite edges that were creeping into her experience of body, she drew, uh, just sort of free flow, an image that became a frightening squid-like creature with a single eye, surrounded by spiraling forms. She was so frightened, she asked for an extra session and then asked if I would keep this sinister water monster for her. She was amazed I didn't think it was terrifying but I, I knew that squids don't attack humans, so that helped. Although I didn't say so, I thought it represented an aspect of the self as guardian of the watery depths in which she wanted to remain. 
I don't have a picture of it, sorry. It seemed to stand against the beginnings of a real addiction to the bliss of self-indulgent flow as a kind of symbol of the destructive, glomming demandingness and that artificial intensity that would give excitement so she could stay passive. And indeed, the terrifying eye scared her out of the whirlpool vortex of her autoerotic water fantasies. And later she claimed the picture back, refusing to let me photograph it. I wondered if that represented her fear of its existing between us, her own returned courage, or her sense of its numinosity being just for herself. Perhaps all of them. We can find... Celtic amplifications for the watery eye, because the source of a river or stream shines and gives forth, it was equated not just with the vulva, but with another entrance into the body. The Celtic wellspring was often called its eye or head. The Celts believed that the goddess's far-seeing wisdom could be obtained by looking deeply into or drinking from a sacred spring. Like a cosmic mirror, such vision in the water allows the viewer to see and internalize her own truth from a transpersonal perspective. This vision from the archetypal Earth Mother affirms and blesses the existence of the new being, showing it to be harmonious with its matrix. My analyzan was looking into the healing pool of the archetype constellated in therapy and her bath wells to obtain a new vision of herself, one not identified with head and achievement, but neither was she to remain in the passive womb-like regression. Seen through the self's eye, the life process is guided and goes where it must. And at that point, of course, a synchronous incident in the therapy disillusioned the idealization of the therapist and her near-addictive excitement in the therapy. I was late in letting her into the waiting room for her customary pre-session sit, and she panicked, fearing death and abandonment. She soon found her anger, but she also realized with surprise that she could see that the disruption did not mean that either of us was bad. She could appreciate that she she was dislodged from her security in what might be a normal way. Hence, neither she nor the therapist died, and she wasn't engulfed by her old defenses. The relationship continued, and she was further shifted towards her own body self as the holding constancy of her now more independent process. Whoops, sorry. While I kept the terrible eye in my drawer, she brought a picture a few weeks after my lateness, that is, maybe a beach with some creature lying there warm in the sun. She was contemplating a seaside vacation with a new lover, perhaps abandoning me as she had felt abandoned and knowing we would both survive. It feels very definite, she said. It has edges. To me, it's still relatively polyvalent. I asked what she saw in the form, and she said, well, it's a woman on a brightly lit beach, but maybe it's a large bird or maybe an earth formation. I silently thought of Henry Moore's landscape women. Many of his sculptures convey what he called the mixture of figure and landscape that was also central to the worldview of ancient peoples. An increasing number of modern artists have expressed for our times the archi ancient archetypal analogy between the forms of earth and the human female body. Georgia O'Keeffe's paintings were among the first. In one landscape near Abiquiu, she depicts the birthplace of a goddess of the Navajo peoples in New Mexico as a group of mountainous forms that are similar to those of changing woman herself. And here is Meinrad Craighead's mystical painting of God the Mother as a mountain. My Annalisan dreamt, I am going down a long mountain cave passageway and, and meeting, a strong and ancient woman who runs the lost and found. <laughs> the crone blessed her new love relationship and said she would be there for help whenever she was needed. 
the archetypal dream figure was taking some of the authority and presence previously invested in the therapist. And I felt my client's growing independence. Her sense of being safely embodied, too, was replacing the holding function that therapy had once had, just as it replaces the early mother-child bond in childhood and adolescence. She dreamt about learning to sing in the therapist's office and needing to find her own pelvic support for her voice. You know, she confided, I don't really know where I am. It's like a new land. Is this normal? She was emerging as a separate and related individual. During this time, she began to paint and draw partly abstract earthy forms that suggested shells and stones. They were never far from pictures of the human body. And here are three that she called chapels of the vulva. They celebrate it, not as vibrantly as, and openly as Inanna did, much more introvertedly as befits our long puritanized culture. Here it's a secret guarded temenos, a place of worship and intimate connection. She talked about new pleasures in lovemaking with her, with her male partner, whose love of her own body she could enjoy. In the paintings, too, she's looking from the earth up at the female body, not down, as in the shower pictures. The new perspective re represents a humbling of the once exalted intellect before the sacred and creative body mysteries. Her chapels had dolmen-like chambers, similar to those inside of the Neolithic mounds. And this third, it's a little unfocused. This third chapel is increasingly vegetal and centered, as if it was now safe enough to move from stone to plant forms and to celebrate the living sensuality of her new relations to earth and her own embodiment from her own center. They also, all of these, reminded me of the ancient megalith that represented the female body. Some of these looked like vulvas and were used for healing by rural women in Brittany, even into this century, who would sit on them and rub their genitals against them to, to cure infertility or menstrual problems. And of course, we know the Sheelina gigs. Such images of the displayed and birth-giving earth goddess are worldwide from Sumer on, and probably before Sumer. In Celtic lands, they were placed on church facades and over, over graveyards, even over Norman Irish castles. Women on their way to wed rubbed the open belly vulva, as you can see here on this church window, where it's all rubbed down, to gain the magic that might ensure their own fertility. And we know that many modern artists again celebrate the female genitalia and its flower-like intricacies as the source, a core image of the embodied spiritual feminine. This is Judy Chicago. Is, uh, she calls a gray line, it's, it's, uh, let's see, gray line in black, blue, and yellow. Very abstract title, but it's clearly what it is. Some weeks after the paintings of the chapels of the vulva, and as she was painting colorful rounded forms that were very vegetal, the, my Anna Lizanne dreamt, I'm staying with friends at a, in a cottage near the sea, a cottage like the home of a woman painter whose work she admired. In the night, I am awakened by noises and see people with lights on the beach. They have found something washed up. I rush out and see a large sheaf of corn stalks. Wildly, I tear them away. Inside is a warm, rosy, fresh-skinned young woman just waking up. She's like a baby coming out of a bunting. I embrace her, weeping, full of awe and joy, repeating, it's a new woman, a new woman. And here she dreams of the spring goddess, the reborn grain or corn dolly, as her own newly discovered womanhood, ripe to come forth and be claimed. For this Anna Lizande, 
the figure of the new woman represented the culmination of a phase of her process in which the maternal earth goddess and self-vessel were internalized in her own body as the spirit of a strong, sensuous, vulnerable, and fruitful inner landscape. Working further in her outer life to change her medical specialty and to end her unproductive marriage, she continued to test the security of her psychic terrain as she worked with the passions that had once blasted her. She continued therapy for five years with many further returns and reemergences, during which she dared to undergo a series of bodywork sessions that brought a lot of material for analysis. And when she left, she went forth with the certainty that such painful and fruitful rhythms would continue all her life. She had her congruence with the matrix of mother, body, and self. And she was able, however, to, to maintain her own dynamic equilibrium when she was shaken and to continue her own development and to creatively serve the feminine spirit in its imminent mysteries and endless unfolding, which is, of course, what I wish for all of us. from you if you get that kind of polymorphous images when you work with people because I, I hope desperately I don't induce them <laughs> but, so I know one other person who, who gets them from her clients but do any of you uh oh <laughs> maybe you will now I'm not anyone uh, concerned with therapy. I'm an English teacher, and I have studied folklore all my life with a particular interest in Celtic folklore. So my question is, um, all of these uh, pictures have to do with the Celtic landscape. Did you choose that because you're especially familiar with it or because there is something there that has been developed by the Irish or Irish folklore or, and, and not present elsewhere? I would say that it's not so much that it's been developed there, but because of the, until very recently, peasant level of, of much of Ireland, and because it's, it's a kind of peripheralized part of the world, that ancient culture has remained there, so that you can feel all the way back in Cornwall, too, to the Paleolithic roots. And it's very alive and vibrant in the folklore, too. You have to sort of peel away some of the heroic level and get Cúchulain out of the way, but the goddess is always there, and even Cúchulain doesn't kill her. So um, it's, it's a place where... Even Yeats wrote about, uh, uh, remember the, the, in Kathleen, Kathleen Houlihan, at the end, there's this wonderful woman walking, and he says she has the walk of the queen, and that's clearly the queen of the land. So it's, it's very alive still in that particular culture, and I, I have gotten rather interested in it. You even use the term shape-shifting, yeah. which literary people use about the, the figures in Irish mythology. And mm -hmm. is that a term you're using metaphorically, or... I was just interested in it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think all the primal gods are shapeshifters. I mean, every god in every religion is, is, comes to us in many forms. Even Christ, he's a fish, he's a, he's a grape, he's a, all sorts of things. So it's, it's as if when you hit that archetypal level, it's going to manifest or come forth in many ways. So it's, it's sure, it's metaphoric or symbolic, but it's... it's uh, and shapeshifting is part of shamanic, which has also been alive in Ireland 
and, and the Celtic lands. Mm-hmm. I recently experienced a labyrinth uh, workshop and wondered if you had had any experience of the healing aspect of, of using the labyrinth with patients or just, just in churches. It's being used on the West Coast in, in I churches. I know, Lauren Artis is building labyrinths, yeah. And actually, my daughter and her boyfriend are building labyrinths now, too. They've just built two of them. And um, yeah, I've walked them, and it's, uh, it's a wonderful experience. I, I'd love to have a labyrinth in my yard. I even recommended one to Carolyn and Rosemary. <laughs> you don't know if it's being used in therapy any place, do you? Um, I don't think so, because it's relatively new, and that the rug that they use in the San Francisco in, in the cathedral, uh, it's pretty big. But it would be great to have it here sometime and just walk it. Or get Lauren to come and, and talk to you and, and walk it. Because it's a very wonderful embodied experience as you approach the center, which is, of course, it's an ancient form. There are labyrinths all over, all over Europe, old Europe. And uh, it's good it's coming back because it, it gives us a way to embodiedly meditate and um, find our own center. Um, with my clients, when I see them starting to get in touch with um, the matrix and um, with the shape-shifting and the transformative process in therapy, there seems to be a lot of body image distortions in themselves that emerge, and sometimes clients who've never reported any kind of eating disorders before, all of a sudden in reaction to this fear of nourishment and um, start developing eating disorders. I was wondering if that were your experience. Actually, I, I was cutting this paper because it was too long, but when she fell into her first dual unity, with that picture of the sort of two, uh, that spiral, whatever you call that form, um, she began eating Oreo cookies. <laughs> and and right? because she had seen um, some clementines in my office in a little bowl one day, she, she was eating, she bought clementines and she was eating Oreo cookies, which was her childhood thing. And uh, she gained quite a lot of weight. But mm-hmm. until, until she could hold that phase a different way, because you have to go back to the oral level. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just kept that out because I thought it might come up, but thank right. you for asking. Yeah. Yes, I, along the same lines, I was wondering if you could talk about the rage that comes up when this level is hit and that um, uh, the, the desire really to break the therapy um, mm-hmm. and uh, that I've actually had people leave therapy at this point and I'd like you to maybe talk about that. I think it's inevitable because the rage is left over from the earliest rage at having been frustrated very early and um, it it will have to come out. That's why I was so glad to see that jar in the early paintings because I was not sure what was going to happen. And um, so much of that, what's called the attack on linking, comes right back as a uh, an attack on every the the links inside the client, the links right. between, between you. Uh, and yeah, in the, in right. The and that's a great way to put it. The attack on linking. It's a beyond phrase. It's okay. a great. He has a wonderful paper called "Attacks on Linking," which I recommend. Okay. But um, but it, that comes up yeah. when this level is touched. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Maybe about to go into the pool, or sidewise if you turn it up again with the, the right side, or perhaps in either direction. It's hard to tell. Uh, it's one woman looking into a mirror or perhaps two women looking at each other. In it, she's beginning to, to claim a fetal kind of human body and a spacious enough psychic landscape in which to incarnate. The dual unity includes, includes nature and more of a twinship. There's a clear reference to the empathic interrelationship she was experiencing in the therapy, a kind of mirroring that enables a sense of self-cognizance with both mutuality and harmonious independence. But she wasn't sure which side was up. 
suggesting that she still had no consistent conscious ground line or position in the therapeutic work, even though she was holding her own somewhat better in the outer world. And the shape-shifting forms also signaled to me another return to preverbal levels. I wondered where we were to go. Since the space between us was relatively clear of the persecutory animus, early memories of being, being and relating to, began to emerge into thought between us, the unthought known that Christopher Bolas has written about. And she began having faint memories of a very traumatic infancy and childhood, almost just as body sensations. And throughout the painful rememberings and much silence, she often grabbed my hand or sat on the floor near my chair. She began to talk about her bodily and social inhibitions, confessing to what she realized were undifferentiated genital sensations. As if retreating from heterosexual relating and further toward the matrix that therapy provided, she took a leave from her hospital work and allowed the regression. She felt a mixture of excitement and shame as she fell now into what I thought was an early, perhaps urethral erotic transference that mixed together the early exciting persecutory bodily abuse and her desires for experience of the unbounded, unremitting flow from the self that would carry her to healing. She felt awash with desire to be with the mother analyst and to share everything. She wanted to come to session every day and she couldn't. She telephoned the answering machine often. And then the pain of separation found assuagement and a kind of transitional holding in the many showers she began to take. She communed with the therapeutic process standing under the warm running water. In that space, she began to enjoy and explore her own nakedness, caressed by the warm streams. Far from the professional eye of the surgeon, she began to feel her body with near senses and from within. She felt she was melting. More of her defenses were. And she brought in a series of paintings of the experience of this saludio, flowing streams and her body with its shapes and fluids merged with the earth's waters. This one suggests the inter interpenetration of flowing water and watery ledges. She said it was the beginnings of a sense of herself looking down at all the intricate curves and folds below. That thing in the middle is her head. Instead of her early identity with the bony abstraction of the skull, here she's finding the landscape of her original body self in the healing, rebirthing maternal waters. And it felt like the beginnings of a natural center, not a defended fortress one. Perhaps the birth of an adult body self to consciousness. She started this painting in blues, like the formal, former ones, but it took on earthly colors that she tried to rub out. She was reluctant to allow ruddy colors and said she preferred the free water. She said she would like never to have to emerge. At home, she was masturbating with fantasies of being caressed. She was taking three and four showers a day for the pleasure of water flowing and her own autoeroticism. After working to erase some of this picture, as if trying to erase the earthiness and the more definite edges that were creeping into her experience of body, she drew, uh, just sort of free flow, an image that became a frightening squid-like creature with a single eye, surrounded by spiraling forms. She was so frightened, she asked for an extra session and then asked if I would keep this sinister water monster for her. She was amazed I didn't think it was terrifying but I, I knew that squids don't attack humans, so that helped. Although I didn't say so, I thought it represented an aspect of the self as guardian of the watery depths in which she wanted to remain. I don't have a picture of it, sorry. It seemed to stand against the beginnings of a real addiction to the bliss of self-indulgent flow as a kind of symbol of the destructive, glomming demandingness and that artificial intensity 
that would give excitement to, so she could stay passive. And indeed, the terrifying eye scared her out of the whirlpool vortex of her autoerotic water fantasies. And later she claimed the picture back, refusing to let me photograph it. I wondered if that represented her fear of its existing between us, her own returned courage, or her sense of its numinosity being just for herself, perhaps all of them. We can find Celtic amplifications for the watery eye. Because the source of a river or stream shines and gives forth, it was equated not just with the vulva, but with another entrance into the body. The Celtic wellspring was often called its eye or head. The Celts believed that the goddess's far-seeing wisdom could be obtained by looking deeply into or drinking from a sacred spring. Like a cosmic mirror, such vision in the water allows the viewer to see and internalize her own truth from a transpersonal perspective. This vision from the archetypal Earth Mother affirms and blesses the existence of the new being, showing it to be harmonious with its matrix. My Analizan was looking into the healing pool of the archetype constellated in therapy and her bath wells to obtain a new vision of herself, one not identified with head and achievement, but neither was she to remain in the passive womb-like regression. Seen through the self's eye, the life process is guided and goes where it must. And at that point, of course, a synchronous incident in the therapy disillusioned the idealization of the therapist and her near addictive excitement in the therapy. I was late in letting her into the waiting room for her customary pre-session sit, and she panicked, fearing death and abandonment. She soon found her anger, but she also realized with surprise that she could see that the disruption did not mean that either of us was bad. She could appreciate that she she was dislodged from her security in what might be a normal way. Hence, neither she nor the therapist died, and she wasn't engulfed by her old defenses. The relationship continued, and she was further shifted towards her own body self as the holding constancy of her now more independent process. Oops, sorry. While I kept the terrible eye in my drawer, she brought a picture a few weeks after my lateness, that is, Maybe a beach with some creature lying there warm in the sun. She was contemplating a seaside vacation with a new lover, perhaps abandoning me as she had felt abandoned and knowing we would both survive. It feels very definite, she said. It has edges. To me, it's still relatively polyvalent. I asked what she saw in the form, and she said, well, it's a woman on a brightly lit beach, but maybe it's a large bird or maybe an earth formation. I silently thought of Henry Moore's landscape women. Many of his sculptures convey what he called the mixture of figure and landscape that was also central to the worldview of ancient peoples. An increasing number of modern artists have expressed for our times the archi ancient archetypal analogy between the forms of earth and the human female body. Georgia O'Keeffe's paintings were among the first. In one landscape near Abiquiu, she depicts the birthplace of a goddess of the Navajo peoples in New Mexico as a group of mountainous forms that are similar to those of changing woman herself. And here is Meinrad Craighead's mystical painting of God the Mother as a mountain. My Annelisan dreamt, I am going down a long mountain cave passageway and a meeting, a strong and ancient woman who runs the lost and found. <laughs> the crone blessed her new love relationship and said she would be there for help whenever she was needed. The archetypal dream figure was taking some of the authority and presence previously invested in the therapist. And I felt my client's growing independence. Her sense of being safely embodied, too, was 
replacing the holding function that therapy had once had, just as it replaces the early mother-child bond in childhood and adolescence. She dreamt about learning to sing in the therapist's office and needing to find her own pelvic support for her voice. You know, she confided, I don't really know where I am. It's like a new land. Is this normal? She was emerging as a separate and related individual. During this time, she began to paint and draw partly abstract earthy forms that suggested shells and stones. They were never far from pictures of the human body. And here are three that she called chapels of the vulva. They celebrate it, not as vibrantly as, and openly as Inanna did, much more introvertedly as befits our long puritanized culture. Here it's a secret guarded temenos, a place of worship and intimate connection. She talked about new pleasures in lovemaking with her, with her male partner, whose love of her own body she could enjoy. In the paintings, too, she's looking from the earth up at the female body, not down, as in the shower pictures. The new perspective re represents a humbling of the once exalted intellect before the sacred and creative body mysteries. Her chapels had dolmen-like chambers, similar to those inside of the Neolithic mounds. And this third, it's a little unfocused. this third chapel is increasingly vegetal and centered, as if it was now safe enough to move from stone to plant forms and to celebrate the living sensuality of her new relations to earth and her own embodiment from her own center. They also, all of these, reminded me of the ancient megalith that represented the female body. Some of these looked like vulvas and were used for healing by rural women in Brittany, even into this century, who would sit on them and rub their genitals against them to, to cure infertility or menstrual problems. And of course, we know the Sheelina gigs. Such images of the displayed and birth-giving earth goddess are worldwide from Sumer on, and probably before Sumer. In Celtic lands, they were placed on church facades and over, over graveyards, even over Norman Irish castles. Women on their way to wed rubbed the open belly vulva, as you can see here on this church window, where it's all rubbed down, to gain the magic that might ensure their own fertility. And we know that many modern artists again celebrate the female genitalia and its flower-like intricacies as the source, a core image of the embodied spiritual feminine. This is Judy Chicago. Is, uh, she calls uh, gray line, it's, it's, uh, let's see, gray line in black, blue, and yellow. Very abstract title, but it's clearly what it is. Some weeks after the paintings of the chapels of the vulva, and as she was painting colorful rounded forms that were very vegetal, the, my Amelizan dreamt, I'm staying with friends at a, in a cottage near the sea, a cottage like the home of a woman painter whose work she admired. In the night, I'm awakened by noises and see people with lights on the beach. They have found something washed up. I rush out and see a large sheaf of corn stalks. Wildly, I tear them away. Inside is a warm, rosy, fresh-skinned young woman just waking up. She's like a baby coming out of a bunting. I embrace her weeping, full of awe and joy, repeating, it's a new woman, a new woman. And here she dreams of the spring goddess, the reborn grain or corn dolly, as her own newly discovered womanhood ripe to come forth and be claimed. For this analyzand, the figure of the new woman represented the culmination of a phase of her process in which the maternal earth goddess and self-vessel were internalized in her own body as the spirit of a strong, sensuous, vulnerable, and fruitful inner landscape. Working further in her outer life to change her medical specialty 
and to end her unproductive marriage, she continued to test the security of her psychic terrain as she worked with the passions that had once blasted her. She continued therapy for five years with many further returns and reemergences, during which she dared to undergo a series of bodywork sessions that brought a lot of material for analysis. And when she left, she went forth with the certainty that such painful and fruitful rhythms would continue all her life. She had her congruence with the matrix of mother, body, and self. And she was able, however, to, to maintain her own dynamic equilibrium when she was shaken and to continue her own development and to creatively serve the feminine spirit in its imminent mysteries and endless unfolding, which is, of course, what I wish for all of us. From you if you get that kind of polymorphous images when you work with people because I, I hope desperately I don't induce them <laughs> but, so I know one other person who, who gets them from her clients but do any of you uh oh maybe you will now <laughs> I'm not anyone uh, concerned with therapy. I'm an English teacher, and I have studied folklore all my life with a particular interest in Celtic folklore. So my question is, um, all of these uh, pictures have to do with the Celtic landscape. Did you choose that because you're especially familiar with it or because there is something there that has been developed by the Irish or Irish folklore or, and, and not present elsewhere? I would say that it's not so much that it's been developed there, but because of the, until very recently, peasant level of, of much of Ireland, and because it's, it's a kind of peripheralized part of the world, that ancient culture has remained there, so that you can feel all the way back in Cornwall, too, to the Paleolithic roots. And it's very alive and vibrant in the folklore, too. You have to sort of peel away some of the heroic level and get Cuchulain out of the way, but the goddess is always there, and even Cuchulain doesn't kill her. So um, it's, it's a place where... Even Yeats wrote about, uh, uh, remember the, the, in Kathleen, Kathleen Houlihan, at the end, there's this wonderful woman walking, and he says she has the walk of the queen, and that's clearly the queen of the land. So it's, it's very alive still in that particular culture, and I, I have gotten rather interested in it. You even use the term shape-shifting, yeah. which literary people use about the, the figures in Irish mythology. And mm -hmm. is that a term you're using metaphorically or... I was just interested in it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think all the primal gods are shapeshifters. I mean, every god in every religion is, is, comes to us in many forms. Even Christ, he's a fish, he's a, he's a grape, he's a, all sorts of things. So it's, it's as if when you hit that archetypal level, it's going to manifest or come forth in many ways. So it's, it's, sure, it's metaphoric or symbolic, but it's... it's uh, and shapeshifting is part of shamanic, which has also been alive in Ireland and, and the Celtic lands. Mm -hmm. I recently experienced a labyrinth uh, workshop and wondered if you had had any experience of the healing aspect of, of using the labyrinth 
with patients or just, just in churches. It's being used on the West Coast in, in I churches. I know. Lauren Archis is building labyrinths, yeah. And actually, my daughter and her boyfriend are building labyrinths now, too. They've just built two of them. And, um, yeah, I've walked them, and it's, uh, it's a wonderful experience. I, I'd love to have a labyrinth in my yard. I even recommended one to Carolyn and Rosemary. It, you don't know it's a, if it's being used in therapy any place, do you? Um, I don't think so, because it's relatively new, and that the rug that they use in the San Francisco in, in the cathedral, uh, it's pretty big. But it would be great to have it here sometime and just walk it, or get Lauren to come and, and talk to you and, and walk it, because it's a very wonderful embodied experience as you approach the center, which is, of course, it's an ancient form. There are labyrinths all over, all over Europe, old Europe, and... Uh, it's good it's coming back because it, it gives us a way to embodiedly meditate and um, find our own center. Um, with my clients, when I see them starting to get in touch with um, the matrix and um, with the shape-shifting and the transformative process in therapy, there seems to be a lot of body image distortions in themselves that emerge. And sometimes clients who've never reported any kind of eating disorders before all of a sudden in reaction to this fear of nourishment and um, start developing eating disorders. I was wondering if that were your experience. Actually, I, I was cutting this paper because it was too long, but when she fell into her first dual unity with that picture of the sort of two, uh, that spiral, whatever you call that form, um, she began eating Oreo cookies. <laughs> and and right? because she had seen um, some clementines in my office in a little bowl one day, she, she was eating she bought clementines and she was eating Oreo cookies, which was her childhood thing. And uh, she gained quite a lot of weight. But mm -hmm. until, until she could hold that phase a different way, because you have to go back to the oral level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just kept that out because I thought it might come up, but thank right. you for asking. Yeah. Yes, I, along the same lines, I was wondering if you could talk about the rage that comes up when this level is hit and that um, uh, the, the desire really to break the therapy um, and uh, that I've actually had people leave therapy at this point, and I'd like you to maybe talk about that a little bit. I, I think it's inevitable because the rage is left over from the earliest rage at having been frustrated very early, and um, it, it will have to come out. That's why I was so glad to see that jar in the oh, early paintings because I was not sure what was going to happen. Uh -huh. And um, so much of that, what, what's called the attack on linking, comes right back okay. as a... Uh, an attack on every the, the links inside the client, the links right. between, between you uh, and, yeah, and the and right. The uh, that's a great way to put it. The attack on linking. That's a beyond phrase. It's okay. a great. He has a wonderful paper called "Attacks on Linking," which I recommend. Okay. But, um, but that comes up yeah. when this level is touched. absolutely okay. Commentary today yeah. is by Peter Demuth, PsyD, Jungian analyst in private practice in Evanston, Illinois. More information about Dr. Demuth can be found at demuthpsychologicalservices.com. Hello, this is Dr. Peter DeMuth from the Chicago Society of Jungian Analysts, and I'm just um, going to make a few comments about a lecture I just listened to by Sylvia Piera um, about Mother Earth, Body, Self. Um, I was lucky enough to hear Sylvia speak in person one time at a training weekend in Milwaukee, and uh, as always, I find her very erudite. Um, and uh, presenting a wealth of information, but she does it fast and furious, and uh, it really kind of like there's so much packed into this lecture. The only problem I had, of course, was that in the lecture she's presenting lots of visual slides, and if you just listen to the recording, it's really hard to 
to be able to imagine or to be able to benefit from the use of the slides, which I think probably made the lecture really a much more rich experience for those in attendance. Um, so, you know, she's talking a lot about the missing maternal, or I think the uh, how the patriarchy um, disallows the presence of the feminine in our in our culture, and and uh, she talks a lot about what we're rain. Uh, Eisler talked about in her book, The Chalice and the Blade, about how the uh, maternal principle is there, it shows up in our dreams and all that, but how it's been kind of like, uh, it's not appreciated uh, in our society. It's almost like the demonic animus, uh, the patriarch, keeps it down and tries to crush it and, and doesn't allow it in, except that, you know, this is the very thing we need. Um, Rain Esler talks about this idea of a partnership model as opposed to the matriarchy versus the patriarchy. It's like how does the feminine and the masculine kind of learn to work together instead of what I would say the one-sided patriarchy. Um, it reminded me of a dream I had one time where I had this um, damaged medallion and uh, if I don't get it fixed uh, I'm, I'm going to face um, a death and uh, so I have to somehow uh, the, the medallion originally came from the Blessed Virgin Mary, and I have to somehow get to the uh, Virgin Mary in order to help for her to help me uh, repair the medallion. Otherwise, I'm going to like not have what it takes to uh, survive. But anyway, so that's the missing feminine in my um, in my life, and I'm trying to retrieve it. And I think that uh, Sylvia is talking about a lot of this in her work with her patients. Um, one thing I really like the idea about she's saying that. Uh, one of her clients said that I need to touch so that I can be touched. And it reminded me of the um, what it would be like to uh, be stuck in the thinking function without access to the feeling function. So it's kind of like, again, reattaching the masculine and the feminine or the thinking and the feeling. And I just thought that, that was really nice. And then she also talked about this idea of the emerging material coming up from the deep um, psyche. Uh, from the self as kind of like lava flowing upwards, reshaping the landscape. And uh, what I, th I thought about that moment is that our complexes can be reshaped by what comes up from the self and comes up from the, the deep archetypal level and can reshape these complexes sometimes with our, without us even knowing it. Um, because, you know, when we dream, even if we don't interpret or even if we don't work with our dreams, the psyche still has something in mind. The self is still working, even if we're not paying attention. So anyway, um, I would just recommend, if you haven't, I'm sure most of you have read Rain Eisler's book, The Chalice and the Blade, but that was really helpful to me in really understanding uh, the missing feminine and uh, how uh, women can be, like, uh, demoted or how they can suffer from a demonic animus, but we can also uh, suffer from the lack of the feminine as, as males in our society, of course. So anyway, uh, thank you for listening, and uh, hope you enjoy the lecture. Bye.
Thanks for listening. The content of today's lecture is copyrighted by Sylvia Pereira. If you are interested in hearing more lectures by Sylvia, we have a streaming video seminars by her and many other Jungian analysts at video.jungchicago.org. There will also be a link in the show notes. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.